0: Well, we are nearly a week into the festive season of Christmas. A time of goodwill, best wishes, love and peace. And indeed, often it is a time to be grateful for, of seeing family and friends, and of relaxing and of rest. But also at times we realize that the love and the goodwill that is piped at us in the shops or sent to us on cards is somewhat shallow and short-lived if it isn't somewhat fuzzy or hazy or boozy and after a fortnight the needles drop and the goodwill falls away with them and the Christmas lights are switched off And so is the peace. And what then remains of the best wishes? I hope you are all having a good break, because things will return to normal. And then three months of winter are stretching out ahead of us. And what then is there to sustain the spirit of love? I don't know whether you will make any New Year's resolutions and how doable and how feasible they are going to be in the cold light of mid-January. But this morning, we are going to look at what possibly could be another New Year resolution, New Year's resolution for us personally and for us as a congregation and also at how that one could be sustained. Because we are going to listen to the Apostle Paul on love. Now I know that Paul was a bachelor and that he can come across as a very stern man. But yet we are going to listen to the Apostle Paul on love and not even in the letter to the Corinthians where he speaks so poetically and movingly about love as that most excellent way. But we are going to listen to him in that great doctrinal letter to the Romans. Now the theme of the letter to the Romans is summarized in the beginning in chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. And there we read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For that gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew and also the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what follows after that summary is a great, not-so-easy, but also an intense discourse, where Paul tells us, in our face, about God's wrath and righteous judgment against mankind in the chapters 1 and 2. And then he also tells us how righteousness is obtained through faith alone in chapters 3 and 4. And then he explains to us how that is brought about by Christ bringing God's grace rather than through the law in chapters 5 and 6. But then Paul, the realist that he is, he also of course knows that we will struggle with sin and therefore he goes on to explain that although we struggle with sin as it is exposed by the law, we nevertheless may enter God's glory through living with the Spirit. That is what he does in the chapters 7 and 8. And then finally he tells us that God sovereignly chooses to save the Gentiles and notwithstanding Israel's current unbelief, also the Jews. That is what he explains in the chapters 9 to 11. And then Paul ends that tightly reasoned discourse that isn't easy at all. Even the Apostle Peter confirmed that. with the wonderful doxology that we read. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And you can hear Paul's amazement, his admiration, that he is nearly overwhelmed, oh, the depths of the riches. But then after that great discourse, and after that toxicology so what now what what are the consequences for our daily life it's like you can have things explained to you in a sermon beautifully explained movingly explained it was very uplifting on that song. but what about monday so what well, in the rest of the letter to the Romans, Paul tells us what that means for Monday. And in chapter 12, Paul starts drawing out the practical consequences of our life inside and outside the congregation. And our text is in that part. In chapter 13, he then explains the consequences for our, for our attitude towards the authorities and in the public sphere. And in the chapters 14 and 15, He explains the consequences in the relationship between the so-called weak and strong in the congregation. And then chapter 16, he ends with greetings. So it's important to realize that our text follows on that great discourse about the gospel of salvation and that our text sits at that point where Paul starts drawing the consequences for our daily life. We look at the first two, the first verses of chapter 12, therefore, that whole discourse, therefore, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. Because of God's wonderful salvation, we need to live the whole of our daily lives in a certain way, and it is all-encompassing. You see, the Gentiles, they made offerings and sacrifices to their gods to pacify them and to bribe them. And the question often was, well, how much of my possessions and wealth do I need to part with to get from these gods what I want? How much goods and food or cows and bulls and whatever do I need to sacrifice to be left in peace or to be protected? or to win a deal, or a war, or a wife, or whatever. How much do I need to part with? And that is often the attitude people still have when they go through life. But Paul is very different. We need to give it all, ourselves. We need to dedicate our whole life to him. Not as in a monastery, like a hermit. But if you want to serve God who so wonderfully saved you, then you need to do it with your whole life. It needs to be that way. That is what verse 1 says. The word translated in verse one be here as spiritual and sometimes as reasonable in Greek is actually logikos, literally logical, not here used in the sense of mathematics. You know, like A plus B is C, and therefore C minus B must be A. And also not in some kind of loyally reasoning, like the victim was murdered at noon in this place, my client was at the time in another place, and therefore my client cannot be the murderer. But here the word logical is used with the meaning it belongs to the true nature of. If you put a mouse in front of a cat, the cat will jump off it. That is the nature of the cat. That that's happening is logical. If you walk through the rain, you get wet. It's the nature of water that it makes you wet. So it's logical. You walk through the rain, you get wet. And so here, the very nature of serving God is that you do it your whole life. It is not sitting nicely through a service on Sunday and putting part of your wealth on the collection plate and then on Monday we work for ourselves and we pursue our own goals and our pleasures without God. That kind of life, says Paul, goes against the very nature, the logical way of serving God. Now why is that? How can Paul say it, this is the logical way, this is the very nature of serving God? Well, for that we have to look back at creation. Man was created to serve and obey God. That was the whole point of mankind, the very nature of his existence. And that was not drudgery. That was paradise. It's like in the Shorter Catechism, what is the very purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him. And of course, it's very different from today's prevailing philosophy, where man lives his own life and wants to pursue his own goals, whether they're money or power or love or sex or entertainment. Paul describes the current situation in chapter 1, the verses 18 to 20, with his usual clarity. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. They know it was the nature of things. Man was created for that purpose. The end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2 tell us so. With the clear message and it was very good. And God and man were entering into that eternal Sabbath rest of enjoyment between God and his people, living together as it was meant to be, with man serving God. But then the Apostle Paul tells us it all came apart. We can read it again in chapter one, the verses 21, and so on. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And twenty-four therefore God gave them over in this to the sin in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And twenty-six, because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then twenty-eight. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now God, through his plan of salvation that Paul then goes on to explain, restores the situation so that mankind once more can live in the presence of God and serve him. That was the original intent. It was the very nature of things. That was the logical situation. And it is a, radical, a radically different view from the world's. And Paul, of course, knows that because he writes in chapter 12, verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. No longer conform. And that's, of course, not easy because you stand out. Be transformed But it will be living like it was intended. Not perfect, of course, because still we are in a sinful world. But it will be living according to God's good and pleasing and perfect will, is what Paul tells us. And then he goes on to work that out in chapter 12, first verses 3 to 8, life in the congregation using the well-known image of the body and its members. And then after our text, he continues to work it out in the verses 14 and 21 and onwards about what that implies towards the outside world. And then, as he said, he continues in chapters 14 and 15 with the relationship between the weak and the strong and the end of greetings. And in that section, we have our text, the verses 9 to 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It was some time ago that we reflected on Galatians 5, living in Christian freedom. Not in legalism, not in libertinism, but in love for God and his people. And in the context of Romans today, we will reflect upon what kind of love is this? Well, tells Paul, it must be real, sincere, genuine love. And that is the message this morning, which I would like to summarize for you this morning, as follows. Let, in 2016, our love be sincere, be genuine, be real. And we'll note that for Paul, real love has here five dimensions. The first one is, sincere love has moral integrity, verse 9b. Sincere love shows congregational affection, First 10. Sincere love is committed to the Lord, verse 11. Sincere love also seeks support from the Lord, verse 12. And then sincere love expresses itself in practical acts, verse 13. So let in 2016 our love be genuine. Five dimensions, moral integrity, congregational affection, committed to the Lord, seeking support from the Lord, and expressing itself in practical acts. Our text is one sentence, and it runs from 9 to 13, and the verb let or be is to be supplied, which is quite common in Greek. And then it's followed by a set of subordinated clauses with participles and adjectives, and then in, in verse 14, a new sentence starts. And the clauses in this sentence describe the dimensions of this real, the Greek literally says, unhypocritical love. Unhypocritical. There is, of course, in the world a lot of infancy love. At Christmas time, you can also see an awful lot around. And I guess we have all seen it. You know, you are at some party, and some people can work the room from one end to the other. There is a smile plastered on their face. The nice dental work is on show. They have a word for everybody and a slap on your shoulder, and they don't mean a thing. Or people are ensuring you that they are right behind you. And what they don't say is, well, that's where I need to be to stab you in the back or people making endless promises that are important to you, and they just sort of ignore them. And Judas, of course, was the darkest example, because he betrayed his master with a kiss. But here Paul is very clear. Our love needs to be sincere, real, And then he gives these following clauses to us like building blocks or a mosaic forming the complete picture of what real love is. What is involved? What is necessary for this love to be real? And what is required for this love to fit in the service of God? Because that's the same thing. And the first dimension of real sincere love Paul gives us is that sincere love has moral integrity. The first lesson is that real love has moral integrity. It has to distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil. And genuine love, Paul tells us, has to do so quite sharply. The first clause is a participle, and literally what it says is abhorring, detesting, hating. It is a very strong sentiment. It's not just avoiding evil, or not committing evil, or refraining from evil. And it's not seeing evil through the fingers or not silently accepting for peace' sake, ignoring, but it is abhorring, hating and detesting. And around us, the view of love is often very different. There the idea is that love is not judgmental. Love is letting people getting on with their lives the way they like living it. Love is for peace' sake accepting things. Love is accepting lifestyles, respecting is the politically correct word, I guess, that are wrong. And you see it all around us being peddled, schools, papers, television, liberal views on discipline and right and wrong, and they pervade our society, cynically often peddled by people who send their own children to private schools where there is at least still some discipline. But genuine love for our children cannot be without teaching them the difference between right and wrong. It is as in Proverbs, for it says there, whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights, chapter 3, verse 12. And then there's also right and wrong at work. You cannot say, well, this is the way it is, you have to swim with the sharks. Views about good and evil are for the private domain. We have to leave them when we come to do the business. Because look what wreckage this the last couple of years, this lack of love has left us. And not even family, for peace sake, ignoring what is right and wrong. There is in the Bible the well-known example of Eli and his sons in Samuel 3. 3. Where we read, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears will tingle. And in that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Eli's at the end of the day was a lack of love. And then there is the complementing, cling to what is good. The word clinging is not used here in the sense of, you know, a shapely lady clinging to their saving hero and not the drowning person clinging to his rescuer, but it is be joined closely together with, be joined at the hip with, be inseparable from. If they see you coming down the street, people must see good coming down the street. It is quite a challenging statement that Paul makes in these three words. Because real love cannot do without norms. Love is only real, only genuine if it has moral integrity, if it hates and detests evil, and is joined at the hip with good, and continues doing so all the time. That is Paul's first lesson about real love. The second lesson in verse 10 is that sincere love shows congregational affection and respect. In this verse, Paul speaks to the congregation, to the believers. And his letter is to the congregation in Rome, and since the letter is preserved in the Bible, it's also to us. And he says in both clauses in this verse, one another. So he's talking here about behavior within the congregation. And he says two things. First, in Philadelphia, in brotherly, sisterly, familial love, Be, the verb began to be supplied, be loving dearly, very affectionate and devoted to. It's love like within a family. They did not select one another, and so it is in the congregation. It is love, not because of admiration, or because he is bright or she is beautiful or they are useful, but it is family love. In Christ we have become brothers and sisters and now we have to regard one another with that familial, familial affection. And the second thing he says real love should show is respect or honor. The verb, the participle used here literally means lead the way or go before or be the leader. And what Paul here is saying is, you you want to lead the way. You want to go before. You want to be the leader. Well, that's good. Do that in honoring the other. It doesn't mean that the other is always right or is a better person. That's difficult to determine anyway. But what it says is there cannot be any condescension, any put-downs, any gossip, any avoiding, any sniggering, any cold shouldering, any looking down on. There can be nothing that doesn't show honor and respect for that other person. There are, Paul pointed out just a little bit earlier, different gifts within the congregation. Not everybody is qualified for everything, but we are members of the same body. So the second dimension of real, genuine, and sincere love is to show affection and respect within the congregation. And then the third dimension explains what the basis therefore is, because in verse 11 he says, Sincere love is committed to the Lord. This verse 11 has three brief clauses, which Paul gives to us in a bit of a sort of a staccato way, and they're not so easy to translate either. Not lagging in, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The first thing is not lagging in diligence in the New King James at the ESV has, do not be slothful in zeal. Literally what it says is, do not be slow or lazy or indolent or hesitant. Like people sometimes are, oh, I don't know, maybe, let's see, another time, later, not now. So be not slow and lazy or indolent in haste or speed, or figuratively in eagerness and enthusiasm. I guess if you rephrase it positively, it would say, be eager and enthusiastic and show commitment. And of course that can be very difficult. Maybe because of things and developments and people in church, like in life, they can wear you down and they can be exhausting and they, cannot, they can also be not very rewarding and then our enthusiasm may wane. And Paul was keenly aware of that, that we may get discouraged. He writes, he writes about it in the letter to the Galatians, where we read, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. Galatians 6 verse 9. He also wrote it to the Thessalonians, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good, And here he writes it to the Romans. And in all these letters, he writes it to us. So Paul says, your love needs to be sincere. Don't let it slide. Don't be discouraged. Don't let your commitment wane. And then he goes on to reconfirm that in a positive statement. Fervent in in spirit. Keep your spiritual fervor. Literally, the verb, again, it's a participle, a sort of doing, going on word means bubbling, boiling. Sometimes being on fire, in spirit, figuratively, of course. Be enthusiastic. Remain committed. And then what is our zeal and our commitment and our enthusiasm to be directed at? The last clause, at serving the Lord. Not just some undirected religious excitement or spirituality directed at self, but further directed at humbly serving the Lord and his people. That, for example, is why Paul can stop speaking in tongues if there is no interpreter, because it's not directed at anything or anybody but the self. Because that's what it's all about, being the Lord's servant. And to retain this enthusiasm, this commitment to the Lord, is another dimension of real love. That is the third lesson. But as we already heard, that is often very difficult. And therefore, there is the fourth lesson in verse 12. Sincere love seeks support from the Lord. And this fourth dimension is given to us in a trilogy, in hope rejoicing, in tribulation enduring, in prayer persevering. In hope, rejoicing. In theologians' language, spespirans and not spespirata. What it means is the hope is bringing joy now. It's not like you are participating in some awful, demeaning quiz or real program. You know, there you bear it and you grin because at the end there is the joy of the great rewards, money or fame or whatever it is that people get out of these things. But the looking forward here in hopes makes you joyful in the present. It's not rejoicing at hope but in hope. The hope is the cause of the joy today. You see, our horizon should never be limited to what is seen and what is temporal, because the misery that we see around us is not all there is. There is in heaven a Father watching over us and the Lord Jesus caring for us and the Spirit consoling us. And finally, there is also at the very end of our life the word of Paul, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as the others who have no hope. And you see that joy is necessary to help us endure in tribulation and in difficulties. Because it is very difficult to stay the course when we are down and depressed. Many translations here use the word patience, which to me sounds a bit passive. The verb again used is a participle, used again is a participle and it means holding our ground, staying put, holding out. Do not be overwhelmed swept away out to sea, drifting away from the Lord by the challenges and the miseries and the disappointments and the tribulations of life. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, is how he closes the chapter. Because he knew from his own experience that the tribulations will come. And the Lord Jesus warned his disciples, and through them he warns us, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And in order to retain our joy and endure in tribulation, Paul adds the last part of this trilogy, You need to persevere in prayer. The verb used here means to continue do something with an intense effort, maybe despite difficulties. And, of course, to persevere in prayer may require, at times, great effort. And it is easy to slip under the waves like a tired swimmer or to give up entirely because it doesn't seem to make any difference. Many of the Psalms express that feeling, where is God, is he listening somewhere? And the world around us is also not a very helpful place. And he says, I have given them, that is the believers in John 17, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not pray that you take them out of the world. But, says the Lord Jesus, I do pray that you should keep them from the evil one. And it is your prayer, supported here by the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus himself, that will ensure that your enthusiasm doesn't evaporate and that your joy doesn't slip away. That is the fourth dimension of real love. It seeks support from the Lord. And then, practical as ever, Paul turns to the fifth and last lesson. And the final dimension is that sincere love expresses itself in practical acts, verse 13. Now, how does Paul get from hope and perseverance and prayer to helping others? What is the connection between these things? Now, Paul is a man of many experiences, and a lot of them weren't very nice at all. He found himself many a time in need of hope, perseverance, and in situations where he needed to pray very hard. Persecution, worries about his own health, worries about the health of others, worries about his many congregations, about his friends, Paul had them all. He also always continued to reach out to others with the word of salvation, with collections for Jerusalem, with words of encouragement. Whatever the people were in need of, Paul tried to help them. You see, there is a text in Proverbs, one of the many that we so easily read through without actually registering what it says. Proverbs 22, verse 9, A generous man will himself be blessed for... He shares his food with the poor. And if you think about it, it's a very intriguing verse. The, word, the English word for is the translation of the Hebrew word ki, which means when or for, because or that. It can indicate a temporal or a causal or an objective relationship. But in all these usages, the word ki introduces a given effect, a certainty which is the result of some other fact or action. The one thing is there, always the other thing is there also. And so it is in this text in Proverbs. You share your food with one in need, well then the fact of your blessing is there also. Paul may have experienced it many times in his life, helping others will bless not turning into yourself, but outwards towards others, will strengthen your hope and help your own perseverance and stimulate your prayer. And so Paul moves here from, from seeking the Lord's support to giving others support. First, he says, there is to be koinonia with the needs of others. Literally that means it's to be a partner in or to have a share in. And today of course that's often seen as financial support. And of course that is a practical way of doing it in today's society. But the word itself is by no means limited to that. It can be sharing money or sharing food or sharing time or sharing emotions. Joy, mourning uh, comes in verse 15. We were in verse 5 to be the partakers in the gifts of others Now we are also to be sharers in their needs. So Paul's vision here is clearly broader than just giving some money to distribute to the poor or the modern equivalent of sending some money to some TV action for a faraway place where there is a famine. It is being a partner in share, taking a share in somebody's needs. And it may mean spending time with them, visiting or having a coffee, or coming alongside them in their problems, listening, encouraging, helping out, doing practical things, advice, shopping, whatever, and in some cases also financially. And then in the second clause in this verse, 13, that is to be the pursuit of philoxenia. Love for the foreigner is what it literally means, the stranger and the outsider. And this, the text says, you have to seek out, pursue. It is a strong expression. It doesn't mean you sort of wait till you cannot decently avoid it anymore, but actively seeking an opportunity to provide kindness to the outsider. Paul in this text is already transitioning to the next verses about our attitude towards those outside the congregation in verses 14 and onwards. The word also in our translation is often translated as hospitality, and that was in Paul's time, of course, the most frequent way in which to show this love for the foreigner. But I guess today there are many other ways of reaching out. So sincere, real love shows itself in practical acts. That was the fifth dimension, and that is Paul's last and final lesson on love. So let us then in closing return to the beginning. The theme of the letter to the Romans and this letter to us is given, as I said in the verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Now, Paul, in this letter, gives not only that great theological discourse about this salvation and this faith, but also the practical outworking and the effect that it should have on our daily life, this faith and this great salvation. And what he told us is that let our love be sincere and that this love for him here has five dimensions. Sincere love has moral integrity. Sincere love shows congregational affection. Sincere love is committed to the Lord and sincere love seeks support from the Lord and sincere love expresses itself practical acts. Now, this is not a list of unpalatable orders, of tiresome obligations. It is, according to the Apostle Paul, an integral part of the gospel of the good news. You remember Proverbs 22, verse 9? A generous man will himself be blessed for... He shares his food with the poor. And it is part of the gospel, as Paul does not tire of telling us because of the cross of Jesus. And Paul knows the Son of God at the cross is offensive to the Jews. And a Savior at the cross is ridiculous to the Gentiles. And we know it, because it's not much different today. The gospel of a person nailed to a cross for our sins makes people very uneasy today. But in that cross, both Jews and Gentiles are saved. And Paul here exhorts and he encourages us to live beneath that cross in love, in real, genuine love. Beneath the cross of Jesus, we find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls us as we are for hands that should discard us, show wounds which tell us come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, our unworthy soul is one. Beneath that cross of Jesus, his family is our own. Once. Changers chasing selfish dreams, no one through grace alone. How could we now not honor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus, she children called by God? Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path towards the crown, we follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us to be his perfect bride. Beneath the cross of Jesus, we gladly live our lives. Amen.